0: Sustainability. The Potsdam Dialogues. Science for a safe tomorrow. We are confronted now with uh, a global energy crisis and a climate crisis.
1: The climate crisis is really much more urgent than assessed 10 years ago. So we really see that impacts are already kicking in, that they are more dramatic, that there are higher vulnerabilities. Maybe that two degrees is likely not a safe target uh, with respect to um, to many climate impacts. So we need, need to do more.
0: For Europe and for us Europeans, uh, next winter, the following winter will be difficult. We are, we are really experiencing something that we had never seen before. Hello and
2: welcome back to a new episode of the Sustainability Podcast. I think the title of today's podcast actually says it all. Energy security crisis, cost of living crisis, climate crisis, what's happening and what on earth is the way out? Don't worry, to discuss all these crises, we brought together two experts who know all about energy, sustainable energy systems, and what's the latest on a clean energy transition. Welcome Laura Kotzi from the International Energy Agency, IEA, and Gona Ludura from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, PIC.
0: Thank you, Julianne.
1: Hello. Great to great to be here.
2: Cool. So let's just do a quick intro round to get everybody on board, so to say. Laura, you're the chief energy modeler at the IEA. What do you do exactly? So we
0: try through the help of uh, uh, computer models to understand how uh, energy systems may evolve in the future. Uh, We are confronted now with uh, uh, a global energy crisis and a climate crisis uh, and understanding which transformational path uh, the energy sector may take um, in the years and decades ahead uh, is essential to actually uh, be able to meet this dual challenge. So with the help of of models, we try to help policymakers understand what's the best path forward for the energy sector.
2: Right. And now over to you, Gunnar. You lead the energy system group at PIC and Deputy Chair of the Research Department Transformation Pathways. So what are the focus areas of your research?
1: Um, So key questions are what's the role of technologies? um, What needs to happen in different sectors? Because energy is not only about providing electricity, it's also to a large extent how we use energy um, in the demand sectors, industry, houses, transport, etc. Um, And then also what kinds of policy we need to pull this off, to really achieve an energy transformation in line with uh, with these climate targets.
2: Great. So you're both exploring ways towards a sustainable climate-neutral energy supply. Laura more on the policy advising side and Gunnar more on the researching side. So now, at least for me and maybe also for some of our listeners from the outside, there's a bit of a split image when it comes to climate targets in general. So on the one hand, it looked like until February this year, we were moving into the right direction. So at COP26 last year, almost 200 countries promised to cut emissions. On the other hand, though, since 2020, global emissions are on the rise again, especially from the use of coal. So it seems like the hunger for energy is steadily rising. And now we are also confronted with this terrible war between Russia and Ukraine. So with all that happening going to Where do we stand with regards to climate targets?
1: Um, Maybe we have to differentiate between words and deeds. So regarding the climate policy arena, maybe there are some promising developments. We have to realize that basically international climate uh, diplomacy has started 30 years ago in 1992 with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And when I started at PIC, um 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago, really the focus was on global and very, very long term. But what we've realized is that the climate crisis is really much more urgent than assessed 10 years ago. So we really see that impacts are already kicking in, that they are more dramatic, that there are higher vulnerabilities, maybe that uh, two degrees is likely not a safe target uh, with respect to, um, to many climate impacts. So we need, need to do more. And even 30 years into that process, we still haven't peaked our emissions yet. So we are still, uh, we have increased, um, global CO2 emissions after over the past decade. There was a bit of a decline in the COVID crisis. Um, but that was not because of structural changes it was just because of this uh shock that the that the pandemic had on the uh, on the international economy but what I find encouraging is that the logic of the Paris agreement um that we have to, Um, strengthen our target um, that really every country is asked to provide a plan on how to reduce emissions, both in the medium term, let's say until 2030, but then also also on the longer term until 2050 with a view on how to get to net zero, to climate neutrality, um, is extremely helpful. This framing of net zero, we really have to get our emissions to zero um, and uh, this is what uh, kind of uh, starts to change people's minds. But we really, really need that to translate into real action and actual emission reductions.
0: Yeah, very true. Laura, what are your thoughts? Julian, I think you raised the question in a very, very appropriate way. First of all, I think the Glasgow uh, COP was tremendously important. Uh, why? Because never before we have had so many countries pledging to reach net zero emissions. We have the EU with the net zero target by 2050. We have India committing to net zero by 2070. We have uh, uh, China committing to net zero by 2060. Those are the major largest economies and emitters and all have now a, a net zero target. The consequence of that, if the promises made in Glasgow are met, this means that for the first time we have a global pact that would limit temperature increase below two degrees. This has never happened before. So I think this is really something that we need to celebrate. Now, as you said, last year, however, emissions break another record. And most of the reason why we breached another bad record in 2021 is exactly coal. Now, coal use is going up, uh, especially in Asian emerging economies. Despite all the progress we have done on renewables, on solar, coal is soaring. So this is a critical aspect of the clean energy transition that we really need all collectively to work all together. Um, There is one important final point to make here. Uh, Are we making progress? Yes, we definitely are. We uh, at the International Energy Agency, among other things, we are tracking what policies... uh, uh, have been put in place after COVID. So what we call the sustainable recoveries. And we found that at the end of April, governments in advanced economies, so EU countries, Germany, Italy, UK, US, uh, Japan, if you look, the money that governments have earmarked to come out of the COVID crisis that goes to clean energy is first of all unprecedented. And second, it's in line for this year and next year With the amount of money we would like to see compatible with a net zero by 2050 trajectory. This is something to celebrate. This is excellent news. Does it mean that the private sector is following? We don't know yet, but this from the government perspective is also unprecedented. We had never seen it before. So this is very good news. Now, there is another part of the news. Is the emerging economies part of the news? Is the uh, amount of money flowing in emerging markets to clean energy technologies up to what we would like to see? No. It's only a fifth. Now, why is the reason? Why is that that we are not seeing the amount of clean energy technologies investment going in emerging economies? There are very profound and important reasons. So these economies are being cash debt strapped because of the COVID crisis. They are paying very high cost of capital. So there is really a need for international cooperation to fix this problem, because this is where energy needs are growing, CO2 emissions are growing, and where we need these clean technologies the most.
2: All right, so a tiny bit you're giving us some hope here. The situation doesn't seem so bad, but then since February there is this horrible war, and it seems as if more and more countries are saying we need to supply ourselves with energy, so energy first, climate second, so to say, And and Laura, how did the invasion of the Ukraine influence the global situation when it comes to energy and climate matters? What's the IEA's
0: take on it? So, at the International Energy Agency, we are very clearly calling the situation we are in now the first global energy crisis. Why is that? Uh, Some of us may remember that in the 70s we had uh, very high oil prices and we had actually an oil crisis. But today we are not seeing very high oil prices. We are seeing very high natural gas prices. We are seeing very high coal prices. So it's really the entire fossil system that is at incredibly high level of energy prices and really putting affordability issues uh, front and center, energy security issue front and center, inflation, cost of living front and center. Now, we are confronted with this situation uh, and this for us Uh, 23rd of February, has changed the course of global energy and climate for the future. Is it clear in which direction? I have to be very honest. No. I think that policymakers here have a critical role to play. So if we want to take a lesson back from the 70s, in the 70s, what has happened? We were confronted with these very high energy prices, and I want to give two examples. Over the span of four or five years, we have seen the cars that we were selling went to use 20 liters for 100 kilometers to 10 liters for 100 kilometers. So big, big push on energy efficiency. Incredible push on energy efficiency. Why is that? It was a policymaker's decision to enforce very strong efficiency standards. At the same time, we started to diversify. In Europe, back in the 70s, we were still using oil for power generation. In that period, we basically turn very quickly out of uh, out of oil. We started using other resources from nuclear we started using renewables. so started a very big diversification. Now can the same thing be replicated now and actually be used to accelerate the clean energy transition? And I think that we can certainly solve the energy transition, the energy security crisis and the climate crisis with the same tools. Is energy efficiency? is renewables we really need to step up and move ahead. But there is a risk, there is a very clear risk that countries fall back into using coal, especially if they have it domestically. So for us, it's very clear that the solutions today that solve the energy security crisis, the affordability crisis and the climate crisis are the same. And I repeat them, is the energy efficiency measures, is is the renewables, is innovation at large, but we cannot take that for granted. There There are some risks out there
1: yeah, all great points. I um would like to add uh, that um the in responding to this energy crisis, it really time scales matter, and we really are in a situation where uh, especially in Europe, um where we have a gap of basically forty percent of our natural gas supply um that is threatened. on the one hand, it's a tool of power um for for the autocratic re- uh, regime in in, in Russia. To have this opportunity uh, to 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 take Europe hostage with its reliance on on Russian gas, and on the other hand, it's also a moral obligation for us um, to reduce that reliance on Russian gas and energy in in, in more general. Actually, gas is, uh, is is a smaller part even, um, given that the fossil resource revenue is such a huge part of of Russian um, governmental income. We're talking about 40, 50% um, of the federal Russian Russian budget. Actually a big chunk of that is oil, Um, gas is a smaller one, but really um, oil is what matters in terms of the the budget mostly for Russia, but gas is what matters in terms of geopolitical power for Russia. Um, And that's kind of this double squeeze that we are in. Um, and 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 we have to respond to that. I think what's what's very clear along these different timescales. Like, basically, the most critical ones are the next one or two, three winters um, that we need to overcome. We know that uh, most of the gas demand around half for Germany uh, goes into heating, uh, heating buildings, and that of course has a seasonality. So we will need more gas in winter times than uh, than in the summer, um, and that actually means that that these winters will be critical.
2: So if Laura, you, me, and everybody else really put some effort into saving energy, so, I don't know, we put on an additional jumper this winter, then we could actually overcome the current energy crisis.
1: What we see from the analysis is um, that, in the end, energy savings are a huge part, but to get uh, over the next uh, one, two, three winters, we also need to increase... um, Fossil imports from elsewhere and this is painful and this is about um things like setting up new um lng terminals in places like germany uh, to 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 get um alternative supply routes of gas um and this is the part as opposed to the demand reductions this is the part where you really have trade-offs in terms of client policies so we really have to be very wise and smart about Limiting the extent to which we expand fossil infrastructure on in the very short term to overcome this um, to, to overcome these shortages to the absolute minimum because that will be um, yeah that will create lock-ins that make it harder in the longer term to reach our climate targets.
0: If I can jump in here, I think Gunnar said something I completely completely agree, which is for Europe and for us Europeans uh, next winter, the following winter. Will be difficult. We are we are really experiencing something that we had never seen before. Now policymakers have a role to play, but I think we as citizens we do have a role to play as well. Um, so at the uh, at the IEA, we have actually done a, a small playing my part, uh, which explains to us citizens what can we do, what can we do, and to do uh, and to achieve a number of things. First, we can save save money. Uh, the poorest of the Europeans now are really having difficulties paying their bills by the end of the month. So the package we put together can save around 500 euros for fa- for an average for an average family. Second, it can help the current uh, the current energy crisis. I give one example: uh, taking down your thermostat. Uh, on average, European houses are uh, warmed around 22 22.5 degrees. If we turn down. Uh, one thermostat altogether, we cut 10 BCM. If we turn down two two degrees, our thermostat is 20 BCM. To give you an idea what 20 BCM is, this is the entire flow of part of North Stream, which is the largest basically natural gas pipeline from Russia to Europe. So keep in mind, very simple. Turn down two degrees your thermostat, uh, you still be comfortable, put put a jumper on this winter, you will have already avoided a huge, huge amount.
1: Yeah, I think this, uh, this is extremely uh, interesting, and extremely relevant. This this question of how much can we achieve in very short time by pretty simple behavioral changes. Uh, as a scientist, I we try to get our heads around this. So, like there are these these uh, what we call low hanging foods, these very simple, low cost win win options um, that should be reaped. At the same time, we see a lot of inertia. With people's behavior and the big question is or the, maybe it's a million it's a, it's a it's a billion maybe even a trillion dollar question how we can um how, how how we can realize that potential um and um and one way is to like get it to the attention of people so that's super important so you need you need advertisements you need information campaigns um but i also think um making like getting this economic incentive in as well is is quite important and and it's at this, it's really important to realize how much hardship these increased energy bills create for lots of families for lots of poor households it's really really important to take care of that uh, but i'm i strongly believe that capping prices by government intervention is the wrong approach because it takes away a large part of the of the incentives to save as well so and it it takes away a large part um, of the of the awareness also Um, and thirdly it also disproportionately helps those with big energy consumption these tend to be people with richer households with bigger um, with bigger income so there's a strong case to be made um, to help uh, households rather with direct payments as opposed to capping prices
2: so what I can hear from the both of you, that you are cautiously optimistic that the current energy crisis could serve as some sort of catalyst towards a faster
0: clean energy transition. Did I get this right, Laura? I think it could, if you are smart enough. I think uh, Gunnar said that uh, um, awareness and information are critical. In some countries, I see this happening. In some others, for me, it's not as obvious and is not picking up as quickly as, as we should. So this summer... For oil prices and next winter for natural gas are really going to be critical. If we are going to see uh, cuts or um, restrictions of uh, uses for uh, for people and continued high prices, I think uh, we may have uh, uh, effects that are actually opposite of what we would like to see. Instead of uh, having an acceleration of the energy transition, we may see populations and citizens more 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 reluctant. Also because um, in, in some instances we are not really explaining why the high prices are, uh, the, the reasons of these high prices. At the beginning of, of winter last year, there was a narrative around that was saying that actually it's the clean energy transition that was putting uh, increasingly high prices. So I think it's incredibly important to explain the public that this, this is not the case. What we are living today is a, a natural gas, fossil fuel driven spike the clean energy transition actually if we had done it quicker renewables and energy efficiency citizens us at the end of the day we would spend less so uh, this is a big package that I would say information is going to be critical not to have wrong interpretations of why we are having this high, uh, cost of energy uh, and, and bills. Second, there has to be an acceleration of policies and of, and, and of incentives. I think this repower EU in Europe is an excellent example. The money that has been put on the table is an excellent example. Now, does it flow in the real economy? Will it flow in the real economy? Will I be able actually to put the hip up that I want to do and do my renovation that I want to do? Now, i am give you my very clear example. I go to the heat pump provider, they tell me I need to wait another six months. I want to make the renovation, they tell me uh, not before February next year. So I think that what happens in the real economy at the end of the day will really matter. So there is an information issue, there is a flowing the money issue, there is a uh, a simplification of procedure uh, procedure issue. So for me, we do have an opportunity to repeat successes uh, of uh, that we've seen in the in, in the 70s of efficiency, of diversification, of innovation, but I wouldn't take it for granted at this point in time. Uh, I would like to point, however, one thing, that we are talking a lot about Europe, but Europe is not currently the region of the world that is suffering the most out of this crisis. I'd like to put back on the map, that is Africa. Africa already started with the COVID crisis, basically. We were having uh, already one in two people in Africa not having access to electricity. But since 2013, we had managed actually to decrease the number of people without access to electricity. COVID came, number of people without access to electricity started going up again. Now, last year alone, not only more people were not having access to electricity, because simply we did not do the investment to connect more people, put more solar systems, but 30 million people because of the energy prices crisis, could not afford to pay for energy anymore. And this year, this is compounded by these very high prices, a food crisis, and climate impacts that are already being felt. So I'd also say that there is clearly a regional dimension that we need to take into account, where there are other parts of the world that are even suffering much more than than European uh, consumers
1: are. I fully agree. I think also the the responses need to be... uh, differentiated it's important to realize those opportunities that come from the clean energy transition it's also very important to realize that we are moving that that we are in a in a rapidly moving world so the energy economics sh- is shifting very very fundamentally and um we've seen an 85% decrease in solar energy production cost over a single decade i'm not aware of any other energy technology that has Reach such such huge technological progress within such short time, and we are, and there are some issues now with supply chains. But overall, in the long term, we expect further decrease of energy, and that creates substantial opportunities. But that also, like a, a fundamental aspect about the clean energy transition, is that you front load the cost towards the investment side, whereas the operation and the uh, and, and 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 the actual use of the Um, of the systems, there the costs decrease because you use renewable stuff as opposed to buying uh, expensive fossils.
2: Gunnar touched already a bit on the geopolitical aspects of this energy crisis. So how will this influence the current fossil fuel dependencies of countries? Um, Laura, what's your take here?
0: Overall, I think that the fossil fuel dependency are uh, very intrinsically linked with uh, uh, geopolitical power and, and it, it will remain so. So um, every transition that moves away from, from fossil fuel decreases this type of uh, of dependencies. I think we shouldn't be naive though, thinking that the clean energy transition doesn't create uh, other form of dependency. So uh, we would need to be smart enough to anticipate this, uh, um, these uh, possible challenges. Here in particular, I'm... I'm thinking of critical minerals, critical minerals are needed throughout the clean energy transition, they are needed for the batteries of our electric vehicles, they are needed for uh, the electricity grid, they are needed for wind turbines, they are needed for solar. So those critical minerals are equally very concentrated in some parts of the world. So we are working at the International Energy Agency with our countries to make sure that actually uh, we have diversified supplies and those don't create an issue going forward uh, in terms of uh, uh, of geopolitical, of, of new geopolitical uh, dependencies. So we are really in a very critical decade where uh, fossil fuel dependency will not disappear from one day to the next. And at the same time, there are new type of, uh, of energy security concerns that are coming into picture, in particular on critical minerals.
2: Yeah, Gunnar, you also wanted to say something?
1: There's really a lesson to be learned, and European dependence on um, basically a single export country um, in in the case of gas, and that and and that dependence is basically locked into the system because of the of the pipeline transport. Um, th- that that's a huge part of the story, and that's really a very very but painful lesson to be learned from that, that we should not have this happen again. We should not, um, in any of our like uh, critically important um, import commodities, have that kind of uh, that kind of reliance.
2: Okay, but what would you suggest then? Like, how would you set our energy system up?
1: Well, the the key point is really like the market shares. So, having a market share forty percent of all of Europe, fifty five percent in Germany, hundred percent in some of the of the Baltic countries. Um, in natural gas, this is just uh, that's toxic, and that's something that we that we, that we uh, cannot allow. Um, and then, as Laura said, um, looking into the energy transformation, of course, the role of fossils it will not um, vanish immediately, but it will phase out. It will wane as we um, as we go into the future, and there will be emerging new import dependencies and of course there's a geopolitical dimension. Of course for Germany very much, but also for Europe as a whole, we will not be able to be fully self-reliant in our energy. We just have a very very high energy demand density because we have lots of population and lots of economic activity Um, and there are excellent renewable um uh, energy production opportunities outside of Europe. But um, what this transition offers is Uh, um, Yeah, a window of opportunity for rearranging um, uh, these, yeah, these markets and what we can do is we can diversify make sure that we have multiple suppliers um, and in the example of hydrogen or hydrogen based fuels, we can get that stuff from Australia, we can get it from the US, we can um, work together with Chile, we can work together with North Africa and just having a portfolio Um, is extremely useful. And there, what from uh, from the perspective of the European Union is super important is also to team up, to work together, to coordinate.
2: Yeah, interesting. So when you talk about energy transition, what time frame are you actually talking about? Do we still have time? Or does this need to happen in the next five to ten years? Laura, what's your take
0: on this? I think this is really the the decade where we will see if globally we meet or not the 1.5 target. So, This decade, uh, our net zero by 2050 analysis, we basically showed the following. Globally, you need to do, if I simplify to the bones, three things. First, push very strongly renewables in the electricity sector. Give a number. You take the installation we did of solar and wind in 2020. You need to multiply it by four by 2030. Are we on track for this? If I look at 2021, data and 2022 estimates, if we manage to keep the growth rate that we have been seeing over this couple of years, especially for solar, it's not out of reach. So it's something that we could globally do. This would be the first thing. So push very strongly solar and wind. Second, electrify the economy. One example we always make is electric vehicles. Europe electric vehicle sales last year was 20%. So one car in five, we were we were we were selling in Europe was an electric vehicle. Globally, it was one in ten. If we want to reach net zero by 2050, these numbers need to be one car in two by 2030. Again, looking at the growth rate over the past couple of years, they have been very high. If we maintain those by 2030, we can get there. Are we electrifying the rest of the economy as quickly as it should? Certainly not, especially for heating. I'd say heat pumps are really lagging behind so that needs a big push. Other parts of the economy electrification is also lagging behind so that needs a big push. Finally the third thing so solar and wind electrification and third energy efficiency. If you look at energy efficiency this is where we are really going very very slow. We should have what we we have a magic number that is 4% improvement every year of energy intensity year on year. I don't want to explain what that is. But currently, we are doing le- less than half of that. And to give you one complete example of why we are not catching up with this, in Europe, you would need to have 3% of our building stock every year refurbished. What we are doing on average is 1%. So this is the area where policymakers will really need to push and bank for, for, for this decade. But this is the critical decade. This is the decade where if we don't pick emission, if you don't start seeing decline in uh, especially coal uses, then it's going to be really hard to keep temperature below 1.5 degrees.
2: Oh la la, clear messages from Laura. Gunnar, what do you say from a scientific perspective?
1: So um, for Europe, um, well, what we know is that for 1.5 degree consistent development, we need net zero um, CO2 basically before 2015. Um, And that's... uh, Relatively consistent with the targets of the European Green Deal, um, which um, also uh, have greenhouse gas neutrality, climate neutrality by 2050, which implies an earlier um uh yeah, achievement of net zero CO2, just because they are not only CO2 as greenhouse gases, but also methane and N2O and other gases. Um and because there's limited options to take away CO two from the atmosphere, that basically means that we have to get rid of almost all fossil energy within two to maximum three three decades. I think I'd rather say two decades. Um, and and what we see is uh, in our scenario analyses uh, for Europe is that this affects all fossil energy carriers, of course, to the large extent. Coal, as we really try to. Phase out coal as quickly as possible because it has the highest CO two emissions per unit of energy provided, and by the way, also like uh, for air pollution, it's it's uh, it's a relatively critical one. Um, but then it also affects oil and gas, and we see that um, there is already a substantial emission uh, reduction of gas demand in Europe by 2030 to reach the fit for 55, the 55 percent reduction target by 2030 and that's one of the reasons why it's so counterproductive to um take like to, to um question or to loosen up to water down those um european climate targets as a response to the energy crisis that's that's what people are currently considering they're considering taking away um emissions trading or like or increasing the cap uh, in emissions trading to reduce the to, to Get a little bit of short-term uh, reduction in economic costs, but that, of course, in the in, on the timescales of five to ten years, that will increase our reliance on fossils and then also um, make the impacts of the of the energy crisis worse. <laughs>
2: So to wrap up, we've heard there are lots of huge challenges. We need to be fossil free within the next decade. We need to be quick and we need to involve everybody, like every single citizen in every single country, but also more importantly, policymakers who need to set the guidelines. How positive are you that we are going to solve the climate crisis and the energy crisis that came on top now? You want to go first, Gunnar?
1: There's a lot of reason to... Yeah, to, to really put uh, impetus into making this transition work. And there are lots of positive developments. Um, it's, it's ultimately about policy choices. If we pull that off fast enough, um, to, to reach those very, very important climate goals. Um, and then secondly, it's also about dealing with the challenges and for sure that low carbon transformation is not without challenges there are multiple challenges some uh, of those challenges um, can be anticipated we we knew about them and others are unanticipated and this uh, energy crisis that uh, that now has built up i haven't seen coming a year ago um but it's 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 deep and it requires reaction And again, it's about policy choices. And what I think is very, very critical for managing this challenge is to balance between different options. And there are these painful ones, uh, like uh, expanding uh, natural gas supply, like switching to coal in some instances. And it will not go without those um, in in the short term, the one or two years. Um, but on the other hand, there are these other, other options that really are strongly synergetic, that really pull into the same direction as our needs for climate change mitigation. And those are this emphasis on the demand side, on, on energy savings, on accelerating the transition away from fossils and towards renewables. And to the extent that we as society or policymakers um, and, and other critical decision makers um, kind of join forces and push strongly towards the second direction, accelerating the transition. And um, that would make me more pos- optimistic about the long term f- future as well.
0: I actually make a conscious choice of wanting to be positive about it because I have uh, I have two children and uh, I am doing everything I can to make the world for them livable. but. I want to make a consideration actually about based on on what I observed on my my two children that are teenagers, actually. The environmental consciousness that they have stemming actually from school, not necessarily from what we discussed at home, is incredibly high. And uh, I think that this younger generation is coming with uh, an amount of awareness and understanding of what are the environmental issues and the climate change issues that uh, 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 is, is really unprecedented. At the same time, Uh, I think that uh, at Glasgow, we came together with uh, a a similarly unprecedented um, amount of ambition from global leaders that we had never seen before. Now, I hope, and what we're trying to do at the IEA is really to put on the table, we have an opportunity in this additional global energy crisis, which is really put a big accelerator. So, Uh, I want to be optimistic for three reasons, for this younger generation that are coming and in a way to protect them, but also of the incredible awareness. Second, the political leadership we have been seeing recently is unprecedented. And third, this crisis has risks, but is also presenting a huge opportunity. You've been listening to Sustainability, the Potsdam Dialogues, Science for a safe tomorrow.